I'm really excited for this week's sermon. So Darren Swanson is one of our MC leaders and former Chorus intern. There he is. He's like, where is he? <laughs> okay, he's here. That's good. Um, one of our former interns, current MC leader, um, he's going to be walking us through Psalm 103. Psalm 103 is found, if you have one of the house Bibles in front of you, that's on page one, uh, excuse me, 502. 502. Psalm 103. I'll give you a few seconds to get there, and then once you're there, go ahead and stand with me as we read God's Word together. This is Psalm 103, page 502 in the House Bible in front of you. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Who forgives all your iniquity? Who heals all your diseases? Who redeems your life from the pit? Who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy? Who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles? The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field. For the wind passes over it and it is gone. And its place knows it no more. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him. And his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. Bless the Lord, O you his angels, you mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all his hosts, his ministers who do his will. Bless the Lord, all his works, in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O oh my soul. This is the word of the Lord. I'm going to ask Darren to come on up and pray for him as we get started. Father, what good news to us today. What encouragement can be found here in these words, what strength. Lord, open our eyes and open our ears to what you have unfolded in front of us. Lord, speak through Darren. Um, use the words that you give him to encourage, um, uplift. Lord, show us the depths, the heights, the lengths um, that you have come to win us back to you. Thank you for the hope that is found in these words, Lord. Um, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. I'm definitely here. Um, that'd be awkward. Um, yeah, well, good morning. Um, it's certainly a privilege 
to stand here and serve you um, again. Uh, thank you guys for praying for me the last few days. Um, I want to start off by introducing to you a common phrase in the Swanson household, and it is this phrase, selective memory. Yeah. Selective memory. It's not, it's not actually a medical condition, by the way, um, but if you were to ask my mom, all of her kids have suffered from it. It's usually something that happens between the ages of 7 and 18. And it's basically when you remember certain parts of your parents' instructions and you like intentionally choose to forget the other parts. Um, that is what selective memory is. Um, a lot of the parents know exactly what I'm talking about. Um, it's something that I've dealt with. Selective memory is when you are told by your parents to take out the trash before they get home, and instead you're playing Call of Duty. And then when they walk in the door, they say, why don't you take out the trash? And then you just say, oh my bad, I forgot. You didn't actually forget, you just kind of chose to not remember it. That is what I mean when I say selective memory. I think it's this kind of thing that happens to us spiritually as well. So David, he is encouraging himself. In fact, all of creation to worship, to bless, to praise the Lord. And the reason why is because he wants to combat this selective memory, the spiritual selective memory, the spiritual forgetfulness. But of course, this passage is not just important for Christians. I think this passage is important for people who are not yet Christians because the truth is many of us don't really understand what it means to bless the Lord. I think there's a lot of confusion about that word. I think our conceptions of God are often stuck in the abstract rather than in the personal. I think there are many people who think of God as not a personal being that we can interact with, a being that we can adore, but they think of God and their relationship to Him as something that's mechanical, that's, that's cold. Well, um, there's a lot that you can say about Psalm 103. Um, and really what I want to do is I just want to look at three big ideas. Um, there's lots of ways you can divide this passage up. But the first thing I want us to look at is what it means to bless God. All right, that's the first thing I want us to see. The second thing I want us to see is why we bless God. That's where I'm going to spend most of our time this morning. And then the third thing I want us to look at is hope, or when it's difficult to bless God. Right? So let's go ahead and... and Jump in here. Verses 1 and 2. Verses 1 and 2. What it means to bless God. The psalm starts with David telling himself to bless the Lord. But it ends with David telling everybody, everything in creation, to bless the Lord. And of course, whatever this word to bless means, it's certainly important because it's mentioned seven times in this passage. It is not a suggestion. It's not a good idea. It's a command. 
So there are three things we notice about this word to bless. Firstly, we notice that blessing God is more or less synonymous with the word worship. John Piper, a pastor and theologian, wrote a short article, but very helpful article about this. I won't quote it, but I will reference some of this um, that I learned from him. And in that article, he says blessing has more or less two angles to it. When the Bible speaks of people blessing each other, or people being blessed by God, it refers to someone being strengthened, encouraged, made deeply happy. Essentially, they're made better off. But then Piper says, this can't, though, be the case when we bless God, because God, by definition, is the most blessed, the most highly exalted. In and of Himself, He is the most happy and satisfied being. Therefore, blessing God can't mean that we are actually making Him better off. Okay? But the other times the, the phrase, bless God, shows up in the Bible, it's referring to worship, it's referring to praise, thanking, adoring God. And I think that's what this passage is getting at. It, it, it's a call to worship. And to harmonize our souls with the Blessed One. And as we do that, we're blessed. We ourselves are blessed. But we also see here in this passage that blessing God is a matter of the whole soul. It's, it's not just about words. Blessing God involves all of life, and it starts with the soul. Blessing God is not just about singing songs. It's not just about praying a few times a week. It's not less than that, but, but, but it's certainly more, because it's possible to bless God with your mouth, but a heart that's very, very far from Him. Jesus says as much in the New Testament. Blessing God involves the whole soul, not just words or rituals. And lastly, blessing God is the cure for a forgetful heart. We see this in verse 2 when David says, forget not all his benefits. I mentioned earlier that this passage is important because we often forget what God has done for us. We often have a selective memory, don't we? But to forget, just like the word to bless, is deeper than it seems. In the Bible, to forget almost always refers to something deeper than just not being able to recall specific information. It's a matter of the heart rather than the intellect. In Scripture, forgetting is tied to idolatry and disobedience. Nothing makes this clear than Deuteronomy 6 and 8. Forgetting means believing that your blessings in life come from your own hand instead of God's. Forgetting happens when blessings come, but we don't bless the giver. Forgetting leads to perishing. Therefore, the opposite of forgetting isn't remembering some sort of fact, but blessing God and obeying Him. Here's how I define blessing God, and this should be up on the screen. Blessing God is soulful worship and adoration that makes much of God, resulting in heart forgetfulness being cured. Blessing God is soulful worship and adoration that makes much of God, resulting in heart forgetfulness being cured. I think that's why David is repeatedly telling himself over and over again, Bless God. Don't forget. He doesn't want his heart to forget. 
He doesn't want a lifestyle that's void of worship. This means that if you want to fight sin and doubt, if you want to grow as a Christian, you've got to regularly engage in worship and adoration. You've got to regularly preach to yourself and remind yourself what God has done for you. Practically, this means that when you pray, don't start by asking God for things. Start by adoring Him, praising Him for what He's done. But of course, the reason we bless God isn't arbitrary. Okay? David gives us a handful of reasons in verses 3 through 19, and that's where I want to spend the bulk of our time this morning. So far, we've seen what it means to bless God. Now let's look at why we bless God. Why we bless God. There are five reasons I want to walk through that we see in this text. The first reason why we bless God is because He forgives and redeems. We see this in verses 3 and 4. The very first reason David gives for why he blesses God is because, is because God forgives our sin. It's because God forgives your sin. And not just some of your sin, but, but all of your sin. The truth is, according to this text, that God is holy. That means he's set apart. He's fundamentally different than us. He's without imperfection. And he's pure goodness and beauty. Yet it's this holy God who is willing to say, I forgive you. Despite all of the times you've hurt people. Despite you ignoring me. Despite the times that you've gotten angry with others. Despite the times that you lied and were unfaithful. If you come to me, I will forgive you. But it's not just that God forgives our sin. He also redeems our lives, according to verse 4. What did David mean here? Well, I think there's a double meaning. David, he was a warrior. He was a king. He had been engaged in many battles throughout his life. And David understood that it was God who ultimately kept him alive. It was God who kept him from seeing the pit. It was God who saved him from death when it seemed like he was as good as dead. But of course, it has a deeper spiritual meaning. David, just like us, he was a sinner. He knew that it was sin that, that killed his soul. Yet he had been brought back to life and given new spiritual life through God, through forgiveness. Do you guys understand what this means? This means if you go to God as a repentant man or woman, God will immediately forgive you. Immediately. This should add vibrancy and life to your prayers. We bless God because He forgives and redeems. But number two, we also bless God because He gives good gifts. I definitely like this one. Um, we see this in verse 5. We bless God because He gives good gifts. It's God who ultimately satisfies us with good things in our life. So, so our strength is renewed. God provides everything good in creation for us to enjoy. This is certainly the case with food, herbs, medicine, drinks. He, he, he gives it all to us to, to enjoy. And, and our food doesn't ultimately come from the grocery store. It ultimately comes from 
God who provides the rain, the seasons, all of the natural resources for food to grow. David is not denying that God uses means. David is not denying that farmers do the work. No, David understands this better than we do. He lives in an agrarian-based society where he has to farm often. But the point is, David understands that farmers can't control the weather. It's God who provides your food. Don't miss this. God longs to bless and satisfy us. Christianity is not about eating this or not eating that or living some sort of ascetic or monastic lifestyle. Christianity is about finding our way back to the life that God intended us to live in the Garden of Eden where we enjoy God by all of His good creation. That means anytime you open a bottle of wine and you, and you drink it and you taste the sweetness or you like dry wine, flavors. That's God. Anytime you go home and you have a home-cooked meal by your parents, that's God. Anytime you go through the drive-thru Chick-fil-A, clearly, that's God. Right? That's God blessing you. These things don't just come out of there. God is good. Anytime you eat, and you go to sleep with a stomach that is full and satisfied, and you wake up feeling refreshed. That's God. This is why we pray before we eat. It's not because that's just what our parents taught us to do. It's because we recognize where it comes from. It's only right to bless Him. But thirdly, we also bless God because He's just and righteous. We see this in verses 6 through 7. You see this in verses 6 through 7. And you don't need to put that part up there. <laughs> the text says, though, in these verses that God works righteousness and justice. This is, this is really interesting. He works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. In Scripture, the word righteous and justice, they're, they're actually basically the same word in Hebrew. They're two sides of the same point. They're, the, they're, they're twins. In fact, the words righteousness and justice are so closely related that they show up in the Old Testament alone over 50 times. Really, the only difference between righteousness and justice is that righteousness refers to God's perfection, whereas justice excuse me, is God, it's God expressing that righteousness. That's, that's it. That's really the only difference. And one of the best examples of God's justice and righteousness was when God miraculously saved His people during the Exodus and led them through the wilderness and into the Promised Land. It was during that time that God made Himself known and time and time again, He worked miracles for the sake of His people so they could do what? So they could bless Him. It was God who sent hail. It was God who showed up in a pillar of smoke and fire. It was God who parted the sea so that His people could be free from the oppressive hand of Pharaoh. It was God who sent bread from heaven so His people could be satisfied. It was God who blessed them by giving His people His righteous law and commandments so they know how to live. It was God who gave His people who were oppressed freedom, freedom to worship. It was God who literally moved heaven and earth for the sake of His people. 
This means that when we pray, at the very least, this means that when we pray, we can be confident that God hears and sees us when we suffer. We can be sure that God is not absent or unconcerned with the suffering of His people in the world. We can be sure that God's people in Ukraine have a God who fights for them and protects them somehow, some way. We can be sure that Putin will not go away unpunished, whether in this life or the next. We bless God because He's just and righteous. But fourthly, we also bless God because He's merciful and gracious. You see this in verses 8 through 12. I would argue these verses are some of the most beautiful verses in all of Scripture. Commentators point out that verse 8, interestingly enough, is almost the exact same as Exodus 34, 6, when God talks to Moses on the mountain. And what's crazy about Exodus 34, 6 is that God's people had just received God's law. They had been blessed. They had been miraculously saved, right? Rescued from oppression. And then the first thing they do when Moses leaves is start worshiping idols. They're literally bowing down to some sort of golden calf that they sort of piecemeal together. Isn't that like us? God shows up, and instead of blessing Him and worshiping Him, we turn towards the idols. You see, at best we worship God when things are going well. We worship God momentarily. And at our worst, we don't even think twice about God. Our hearts are forgetful. And we're prone towards idolatry. This is why the reformer John Calvin says, idolatry is and always will be the biggest problem in the world. Not a lack of education. Not a lack of resources. Not former President Trump. Not our current president, Joseph Biden. Not even Putin. The biggest problem isn't radical atheism, or Islam, I should say, nor is it atheism. The biggest problem is worship. And people love to worship anything and everything but God. But, in spite of our sin, you know what God says? He says, you know what? Even though you change, even though you guys are stubborn and unfaithful, I'm not. I'm merciful. I'm gracious. I'm slow to anger. I'm full of steadfast love and faithfulness. God says, look, even though you offend me time and time again, I'm not going to punish you to the degree that you deserve. I'm going to show you mercy. This is what David is getting at when he mentions God's love in verse 11 and his forgiveness in verse 12. David says, if you want to know just how much God loves his people, those who fear him, right? You'll, you'll need to brace yourself because God's love for you is unquantified. You can't even begin to measure it. It's one thing to love someone to the moon and back, but it's a whole other thing to love them to the heavens. God's love is incredible. Hear me out. No one has ever, nor ever could, love you like the way that our God loves you. No pet, no man, no woman, no experience, nothing. 
But David also mentions forgiveness again here in verse 12. While verse 3 emphasizes what God does for sinners, verse 12 emphasizes the extent to which God forgives our sin. It's one thing to say, I forgive you, and it's another thing to say, I'm not going to hold that against you at all. I love how David says it here. He says, his forgiveness is as far as the east is from the west. I'm not a mathematician, but the last time I checked, east and west aren't distances to be measured, but directions. The extent to which God forgives us cannot be quantified nor categorized. This is why the moment you try to put a condition or a limit on the extent to which God forgives, you lose the power of the gospel. There are two implications that flow from this before I move on. Firstly, if you're not a Christian or if you struggle to understand the Old Testament, this means that, well, it means that the Old Testament is very, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? It's very similar. There's a continuity between the Old and the New Testament. A lot of times people read the Old Testament and they say, well, look, there's the God, the Old Testament, he's always angry, he's always mad, he's always killing people. But then there's Psalm 103, where it talks about God's love, right? Many people turn away from Christianity because the only conception of God that they've ever had is one of an abstract deity. But brothers and sisters, does this sound like an abstract deity? When you read Psalm 103, does this sound like a distant God? Of course not. Of course not. This also means that Christians should be the most forgiving people in the world. When you get hurt by people, what is your response? Are you quick towards anger? Are you more likely to chide and continually make people know that they should be praying for what they've done wrong? Or paying, excuse me, for what they've done wrong? Well, the last reason I want to show you why we bless God is actually, I think, the key that unlocks this whole thing. The last reason is this. We bless and praise God because He's a compassionate Father. You see this in verses 13 through 19. This is the crux of it all. Here in these verses, David reminds himself that it's not just that God's love is vast. And of course it is, no doubt. But God's love is close and personal. It's tender. It has a context. God loves you like a father. In fact, even the love that you might experience from the best earthly father is just a faint reflection of our heavenly father's love. Father has an intense compassion for his children. It's this righteous yet gracious God who sees our deepest weakness and sin and rebellion, yet he still loves us. In fact, it's our very weakness that's the motivation for God's love and compassion and grace. You see, this is totally different than how the world works, isn't it? And the world weakness is a deterrent for love. Think, for example, of the situation in India and the orphanage crisis there. Many orphans don't get adopted simply because adoption is seen as lesser or because kids have handicaps. Or consider some European countries like Denmark, a country that prides itself of having gotten rid of Down syndrome. 
When in fact the truth is they've not gotten rid of it, they just aborted all the babies that have it. I came across some data from one researcher in the Atlantic where she writes that in 2004, Denmark became one of the first countries in the world to offer prenatal Down syndrome screening to every pregnant woman, regardless of age or other risk factors. Nearly all expecting mothers chose to take the test. Of those who got a Down syndrome diagnosis, more than 95% chose to abort. Since universal screening was introduced, the number of children born with Down syndrome has fallen sharply. In 2019, only 18 were born in the entire country. About 6,000 are born in the United States each year by way of comparison. But this isn't the case with our God. He knows our weakness. He knows how frail we are. He remembers that we're dust and we so easily pass away. We're here one day, we're gone the next. But it's exactly this that moves God towards us in compassion. It's this that moves God towards rebellious sinners and he forgives them and he makes them his own children by way of covenantal and everlasting love. And it's this doctrine of adoption that is the hinge on which the entire gospel swings. It's adoption that moves joyless, ritual, duty of blessing God into joyful praise. Hear J.I. Packer on this. This is a longer quote, but try and stay with me here. This should be on the screen. What is a Christian? The richest answer I know is that a Christian is one who has God as a father. New Testament believers deal with God as their father. Father is the name by which they call him. Father has now become his covenant name, but the covenant which binds him to his people now stands revealed as a family covenant. The stress of the New Testament is not on the difficulty and the danger of drawing near to the holy God, but on the boldness and the confidence with which believers may approach him. Adoption is the highest privilege that the gospel offers even higher than justification because of the richer relationship with God that it involves. The entire Christian life has to be understood in terms of it. I am a child of God. God is my Father. Heaven is my home. Every day is one day nearer. My Savior is my brother. Every Christian is my brother too. Say this over and over to yourself, first thing in the morning, last thing at night, as you wait for the bus, anytime when your mind is free. And ask, that you may be enabled to live as one who knows it all utterly and completely true. For this is the Christian secret of a happy one? Yes, certainly. But we have something both higher and profounder to say. This is the Christian secret of a Christian life and of a God-honoring life. May this secret become fully yours, fully mine. You see, believer, if you understand that God has adopted you, praising Him no longer feels like joyless duty. No, not at all. Pra praising Him, it becomes a delight. It's a means of giving God. Well, so far we've seen five reasons for why we bless God. Of course, I want to finish by making the last point, which is I want to offer to us this morning hope for when it's difficult to bless God. Hope. Or when it's difficult to bless God. You know, the last thing I want to communicate this morning is that praise and worship and blessing God is easy. By no means is this easy business. If I were to end here, at best you would come away hearing try harder or do better. And at worst, you'd come away very frustrated because I think each of you knows this. 
deep down, this is something you cannot muster up on your own. Right? It's hard to bless God when you know you're forgiven, but you don't feel forgiven. It's hard to bless God when you know God provides, but you still don't have a job. It's hard to bless God for His goodness when you've had a miscarriage or you are sick or you've gone through a divorce. It's hard to come to church and bless God when you've been hurt by the church. It's hard to bless God when it's been months since you've last felt any affections or desires for Him. Here I am, little old Darren, preaching about blessing God. Is Christianity not a sham? Are you not concerned with the day in and day out tangible stuff and mess of life when you preach? Well, these reasons and calls to bless God would be lofty ideals if it weren't for someone who has walked this path before us. You see, there's a man who knows your struggle with pain better than you do. There's a man who not only gives you hope for when it's difficult to bless God, but there is one who makes it possible for you to bless God at all. You see, it was ultimately Jesus, not Job, who said, Though he slay me, yet I will praise him. You see, it's through faith in Jesus that you're forgiven of your sins. So even when you doubt that you're forgiven, you can bless God because your assurance does not rest on your confession. Your assurance rests on the empty tomb. It's in Jesus that you have redemption from the power of death because in Christ you've been brought out of death into life and you'll receive a perfect body that will never again see the grave. It's Jesus who satisfies your soul with rivers of living water and the bread of life so you're able to experience the joy and contentment that Paul had even when he was starving and in jail. So when you starve and you don't have enough food, God is enough. God is enough. It's through Jesus that God's justice and righteousness becomes good news for sinners instead of a dreadful thing because it's His cross that has satisfied God's wrath towards sin. So now you're free and you can forgive like nobody else. Oh, it's because of Jesus. It's in Jesus that God's infinite love becomes tangible, palpable. Though no less vast, Seeing as how God loves you so much that he sent his only begotten son to die for you. Nothing stirs the affections and beckons you to praise like meditating on Christ. And it's through Jesus that you experience an adoption. Whereby you cry out, Abba, Father. It's Jesus who stands before God as our mediator, making worship and access to him possible in the first place. And it's Jesus who did send the Holy Spirit into your life, who has regenerated you and caused you to feel and experience God and know his reality. You can bless God this morning because you've been infinitely blessed, brothers and sisters. Infinitely blessed in Christ. such good news. And it's this truth that leads us to bless God from the heart and bless others the way that we've been blessed, right? So, before I finish this morning, I want to offer um, just some very specific areas of application, okay? 
Um, really, there's two. There's just two. Okay, two areas of application. Firstly, bless others by being ready to give to those who ask for you. You see, blessing people should flow from the fact that you've been blessed by God. We were blessed by God to be a blessing to others. And so blessing others isn't primarily, by the way, about money. I should mention that. Uh, blessing others is about knowledge. What do I mean? Jesus blessed people more than anyone else yet was poor. So how did he do it? He, he blessed those in need well because he knew their needs well. And he was ready to meet them. So practically this means that when you are on such and such a street, and there are people who ask for money or whatever they're asking for, come ready. Don't necessarily come with a whole bunch of cash. Uh, that's a foolish way to meet people's needs, and it's not according to knowledge, because if you were to give somebody money, there's no way you would even know if you were blessing them. Rather, be prepared. Have water bottles. Have snacks, protein bars in your car. So that way, when somebody asks of you, you don't just keep driving or keep walking as though you had nothing to offer. Right? Or when somebody asks for food, take them to the store. Like, if you are walking down Broadway and somebody says, hey man, can I, can I get some money for food? Say, no, how about this? How about I take you to Jimmy John's and I'll buy you a sandwich right now. And then get to know them. Converse with them. And if they, won't, if they don't want it, if they refuse, then you did what you could. Come ready to bless. Don't just think that blessing is this automatic thing that you can do because you're a Christian. It involves thinking. And secondly, come to Sunday gatherings focused on giving to God. Come to Sunday gatherings focused on giving to God. Namely, we don't gather on Sundays primarily to get, but to give. Most people go to church to see what they can get out of it instead of what they can give to God. But Sundays are about giving our best praise and blessing to God. And it's only through that that then we are blessed. Let me get really specific here and potentially offensive. There are three things that I find that people who are more focused on getting often say and do. One of them is this. They stay up late on Saturdays. Is this you? Do you stay up till midnight on Saturday? 1 a.m.? Right, right. How are you going to be prepared to listen to the sermon and worship if you stay up all night on Saturday? How are you going to serve well? Are you, are you even serving on Sundays? Or is that not concerning to you? Secondly, people who are more concerned with getting than giving say things like, well, I didn't like the worship this Sunday. Some time ago I saw a meme that was attributed to Francis Chan where went something like this. The person saying this, uh, the person talking said, you know, I, I don't really like the worship today. And then Francis Chan quips back and says, that's okay, we weren't worshiping you. <laughs> right? I mean, there's a legitimate complaint or something you could bring up to people when you say, okay, something's problematic with the worship. But, but is it a matter of faithfulness? Is it a matter of scriptural integrity? 
in the worship? Or is it just your own sort of opinion for what you like or don't like? Thirdly, people who are more concerned with getting instead of giving are the kinds of people that don't like singing in church. Now, now why would I say that? Well, some people say, okay, well, I don't like to sing because I don't have a good voice. Well, heaven's going to be really difficult for you. Because last time I checked, there were angels and people praising God for all of eternity. Um, we're not really that concerned about how you sound. And if we are, that means there's a problem with us, not you. Don't be concerned with getting. Be focused on giving. Is this you? If so, <laughs> the only way to get out of this mindset is through repetitive praise and blessing God. I know some of us take issue with what I'm saying. It sounds obligatory. It sounds dutiful. Well, of course it is. David is commanding us to bless the Lord. But in doing so, you'll be blessed. Don't you want your heart's forgetfulness to be cured? Don't you want your heart's forgetfulness to be remedied? I do. This is the only way. Well, as we close, I want to spend a brief moment saying something uh, to those of you here who may not be Christians. The truth is that these blessings and privileges are offered to children of God. Not everybody is a child of God. You know, regardless of what you do, at the end of eternity, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess the praise of God's glory. Our King will be blessed. Believe me, just as verses 19, 19 through 22 say, all in creation will bless the Lord. The only question is if you're going to share in that blessing. Or will God deal with you according to your sin? Or will God hold his anger over you forever? You see, the flip side of infinite love is infinite death and punishment. Will that be you? Or will you come to Christ and receive blessing? I hope so. Brothers and sisters, we've been blessed infinitely by Christ with every spiritual blessing. Could you not worship this God? Pray with me this morning. God, we bless you because you blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. As you've chosen us in you before the foundation of the world, we bless you because you predestined us for adoption through Jesus to the praise of your glorious grace with which we've been blessed. In you, Jesus, we have redemption and forgiveness. So we bow our hearts and pray that by the Spirit we would have strength to comprehend all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth of the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge. Amen.